Very uh, pleased to be able to introduce Tony Cody, who's the former Boyce Gibson Professor at Melbourne University and Professorial Fellow at the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics. And he's going to read his paper on religious disagreement and religious accommodation, and he will have a commentary by uh, Liz Carmichael from Oxford. So thank you, Tony. Thank you. Um, I'm glad I called for a toilet break there because it turned out there were it was a very big queue when I was there. It was in the common good as well as my own good. Uh, I haven't a, uh, uh, an overhead presentation, uh, I'm sorry to say. I once attended one in uh, Tasmania given by um, Philip Nitschke, who was a great advocate for euthanasia, and he had a PowerPoint presentation, which wouldn't work, wouldn't come on, and endless carry-on with the thing, and just kept giving the logo of the University of Tasmania. And... Um, eventually got going uh, after howls of people saying just give the talk, just give the talk <coughs> and uh, sadly one of Philip's main recommendations was for a new piece of technology in order to kill people <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I thought it was <laughs> unfortunate that uh, this thought had been presented in that context. Um, okay, in the current rash of controversy about religion the sternest critics are agreed that religion is inherently dangerous those who form the assortment commonly referred to as the new atheists, and we have one very prominent one uh, present, uh, view religion of any sort as dangerous, and some have such hostility to religion that they would insist, as does Christopher Hitchens, that, quote, religion poisons everything. For those of this persuasion, religious disagreement is only one source of danger, and total agreement in religious belief and practice would probably worry them just as much, perhaps more, than the existence of differences between faiths. But many critics, and indeed some sympathisers, have a special concern for the problems said to, create, to be created by creedal divergences. The two critical stances are connected, since the idea that religious differences are a source of danger, especially the danger of violence, is often fuelled by the thought that religion is itself dangerous. Indeed, if this thought were not at work, it would be hard to see why the focus would not be upon the danger of differences of outlook more generally, rather than on those created by religious allegiance. Some people do indeed think that a certain uniformity of belief, allegiance and practice is socially desirable, and they consider all sorts of differences, especially those concerned with value, dangerous to such conformity. But I shall take it that the critics I mentioned earlier are all liberal democrats of a sort, who more or less enthusiastically accept the value of differences in outlook within pluralist democratic societies, and would wish that there was more of it in other societies. Of course, they usually put some limits on the value of difference, and often those limits relate to contexts in which difference creates dangers to civil peace or to the legitimate well-being of citizens. Something like Mill's harm principle acts as a constraint upon the valuing of difference, so once more the idea of the danger of beliefs or practices or differences in them comes to the fore. In a lecture in Oxford last year, I addressed the question of the supposed dangers of religion. I don't want to capitulate all the, recapitulate all the points made there, but some discussion is needed of the very strong claims about the intrinsic dangers of religion made so often uh, in our day. Let me begin with several cautionary notes about the question itself. We must not assume, as it is easy to do, that because something is dangerous, it's bad or to be entirely avoided. Many good things are dangerous in certain contexts. As we're constantly warned by the medical profession these days, alcohol is dangerous, even though it could certainly be argued that consumption of alcoholic beverages like wine and beer is both pleasurable and an important ingredient in sociability. Many beneficial medicines are also dangerous and carry warnings about circumstances in which the dangers can be realised. Indeed, for some people in some circumstances, medicines themselves can be fatal. Goods like freedom, travel, exercise, sport and authority all carry dangers with them and can be poisonous, to use Hitchens' phrase, in some common circumstances. 
The adversarial legal system is certainly dangerous because it allows for many criminals to escape justice and return to the community. Some of these are dangerous people, but most of us regard the merits of the system to be such that they outweigh even such great risks. So it may be with religion. Of course, if religion has few or no good effects, then any analogy with the items listed above will fail, but that remains to be argued. A further preliminary point is that I'm not going to assume or argue that religion or any particular religion is true or false, nor will I assume or argue that any, any of it is rationally rational or non-rational, though I will later say something about that, the significance of that for my topic. A second important preliminary point is that the question how dangerous is religion is misleading in its sweeping generality. It may be that some religions are dangerous and others are not, or some are very dangerous and others only slightly so. It may be that religion was dangerous in the past but is no longer, or that it wasn't dangerous in the past but is now. It may be that some forms of religion, including forms of the same religion, are dangerous and others are not. And of course, there are many permutations of these possibilities with respect to time, place, degree, and particular religious features. Quite apart from speculations of the just so variety about the evolutionary mechanisms giving rise to religion, there can be no doubt that religions do themselves evolve, both in their intellectual aspects and lived practice. This is true not only of the development of new religions, but also of the ancient or traditional religions. It's a curious fact that many of the critics of religion, whose own standpoint is as defenders of the idea of evolution, tend to treat religions as static and monolithic entities, thus echoing those conservative defenders of religion who would like such stasis to be the norm. More generally, it's surely obvious that if we want to claim that some belief or practice is dangerous, we need to identify the content of the belief or the nature of the practice. Given the extraordinary variety of beliefs and practices that have commonly been characterised as religion, it's therefore hazardous to operate at the level of generality conveyed by claims like religion is dangerous or religion leads to violence. It would be nice to have a definition of religion, but the task of providing one has proved notoriously difficult. We've already heard this uh, in our uh, proceedings. The historian Martin Marty believes that religion has a particular tendency to be divisive and therefore violent, but after examining 17 different definitions of religion, he admits that, quote, scholars will never agree on the definition of religion. Belief in God seems a strong candidate as a necessary condition for religion, but it would seem perverse to exclude certain forms of Buddhism which have no belief in God, and many would think the same of Confucianism. And it may not be sufficient because there are deists who might not be regarded as religious because they have no rituals or recourse to prayer or spiritual techniques like meditation. And many religions believe in gods rather than God, as the intelligibility of the term polytheistic religion attests. Moreover, even a classically theistic religion such as Christianity can embody a quite practical account of the nature of pure religion, such as we find in the author of St. James' Epistle. Quote, pure, unspoiled religion in the eyes of God our Father is this, coming to the help of orphans and widows when they need it, and keeping oneself uncontaminated by the world. It seems that the word religion at best expresses what Wittgenstein called a family resemblance concept, whereby the concept unity, if it has one, arises from the overlapping and interconnecting of important features, none of which provide necessary and sufficient conditions for the application of the expression. Although uh, Martin Muddy de declines to give a definition of religion, he does list the following five features of religion. One, focusing our ultimate concern. Two, building community. Three, appealing to myth and symbol. Four, employing <coughs> rites and ceremonies. Five, demanding certain behaviours. But as he then goes on to argue, perfectly secular politics also commonly embody all five features. The common good of the community, the pursuit of liberty and similar political goals, Focus forms of ultimate concern for many people, especially but not exclusively politicians themselves, 
It's prominent amongst the aims of most secular politics to build community, witness the widespread fear that religious division will impair such efforts. Politics deploys symbols and myths in a variety of ways. In Australia, the myth of the Anzacs and Gallipoli. In England, the royal family, both a symbol and a sort of myth, uh, or Dunkirk. In America, the flag, the leadership of the free world, and the log cabin of the White House. As for rites and ceremonies, the openings of political assemblies, the inauguration of presidents, the grand balls, and the conferring of honours are all cases in point, and the demand for certain behaviours is constitutive of the political order, witness all its laws and regulations. There are at least two ways of responding to this apparent impasse. One is to abandon hope of com comprehensive mapping of the ordinary concept, even with the aid of family resemblance, and simply stipulate a concept of religion that differentiates it from politics and other domains, so we could insist on a belief in a god or gods, or even simply in monotheism. This is roughly the strategy adopted by my friend Dan Dennett. In spite of Dennett's invocation of scientific analogies from biology, this would not be good anthropology, but it might have a more limited utility in the discussion of violence and other matters in relation to some central forms of religion. A second radically opposite manoeuvre is to abandon the idea that religion can be defined or even sufficiently demarcated in any way that can make the idea that religion has any special tendency to violence tenable. This second route has been taken by the American theologian William Kavanaugh, who has argued that the sharp separation of religion from other areas of human life is a purely modern and mostly Western phenomenon. Consequently, much of the evidence for the violent propensities of religion is drawn from contexts in which motivations for the violence are multifaceted and would, what would now be called religion, merely one integrated ingredient in a motive set. This integration continues today in societies that do not embrace secularity in the way that most European societies have. This integration combined with the more general difficulties in defining religion leads Kavanaugh to a sweeping dismissal of the intelligibility of claims about the tendencies of religion towards violence. His final position is a little elusive, but it seems to be that our understanding of the idea of religion is so opaque that claims about the dangers of religion are too lacking in precision to be coherent. He does not, of course, deny that there are particular faiths, such as Christianity and Islam, but the construct religion is a sort of vague portmanteau into which all sorts of old-fashioned things are put by the modern secular mind. Whatever we think of Kavanaugh's analytic rejection of the religion concept, the integration argument is detachable from his more sweeping claim and, I think, more plausible. To take the terrorist activities of contemporary Islamic fundamentalists as simply manifestations of religion, for instance, is to ignore the way that their religious commitments complement and intersect with political outlooks and grievances that would make perfect sense to non-religious people, even though they seldom bother to examine such motivations convinced as they are that the cause of the violence is wholly religious. Uh, and here I discuss Robert Pape's uh, argument um, where he points out, after examining the motives and background of suicide bombers from 1980 to 2003, uh, he shows that religion is seldom a significant factor in the motivation. We've canvassed this perhaps enough for me to skip that, uh, uh, that bit. Um, uh, Pape doesn't claim that religion plays no part in the creation of suicide bombers but his statistical analyses and exploration of personal and political histories indicate that where operative is simply supportive of the other more central factors, such as foreign occupation of a homeland or military and financial support of an oppressive regime, that are basically political and often nationalistic. Although Pape's findings support one aspect of Kavanaugh's critique, they do so at some cost to his more sweeping claim. They support the idea that for many, for many cultures, religion is closely interwoven with other aspects of life, so that the isolation of religion is uniquely prone to violence, as uniquely prone to violence is hazardous, if not downright implausible, for many of the examples standardly used to promote this idea. On the other hand, the very success of Pape's enterprise 
relies upon the falsity of Kavanaugh's stronger thesis that the difficulties of defining religion make talk of religion so essentially opaque that there can be no point to claims that religion has a tendency to violence or anything else. For Pate's enterprise, you need to identify the religion in order to show that it's having less effect and significance than is usually believed. So I would reject the stronger thesis and Kavanaugh's associated claim that only in modern post-Enlightenment liberal societies can religion be distinguished from politics at all. In the foundational Christian documents, Christ is famously portrayed as saying, quote, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to gods the things that are gods. This text has resonated throughout Christian tradition precisely in connection with issues about the proper relation of Christianity to the political order. Medieval discussions of church-state relations no doubt tended to claim rather a lot as gods or the Pope's provenance, but they were sensitive to problems of demarcation and jurisdiction. So if Christianity is a religion, as some might deny, then Kavanaugh's strong thesis must be false, even if a weaker version of it is true. Of course, it might be argued that Christianity is unique, or at least unusual, in leaving room for a distinction between politics and religion, even if for much of its history the distinction was ignored or obscured. I don't have the space or expertise to judge this question, though any judgment must also acknowledge the fact that in the modern world there are many adherents of other religions who want to make both a distinction and some form of separation between politics and religion. This is true even of Islam, which is often portrayed as incapable of making the distinction from its own resources. I then have a discussion of Kavanaugh's critique of uh, liberal politics, which I think is uh, exaggerated. Uh, I won't go into that. What can be learned from Kavanaugh and Pope, Pate is that common claims about the distinctive or even unique tendency of religion to promote violence are to be taken with substantial grains of salt. Grievances and ambitions of all sorts tend to produce violence, and what is called religion will sometimes be an element in those grievances and ambitions. Sometimes it will be a weightier element than at others, sometimes it will be minor or absent altogether. The absence of religion as a factor from some of the most ghastly outbreaks of violence in history must be viewed as a balancing consideration against those conflicts that seem to have a predominantly religious flavour. The appalling massacres by atheistic totalitarians such as Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot and Adolf Hitler had nothing to do with religion, though it's worth noting that critics of religion have some difficulty accepting this fact. Uh, Richard Dawkins, for instance, makes some effort to cast Hitler as a theist, though some, somewhat sympathetic to religion, but has to admit Stalin's rigid hostility to it. I find Dawkins' interpretation of Hitler implausible, but in the end, he is mainly concerned to argue that the violent crimes of Hitler and Stalin cannot be laid at the door of atheistic belief, even if both men were atheists. I have no need to argue that it can since my concern is merely to point to the way in which non-religious ideologies or other factors have a grave, grave responsibility for massive resorts to violence. Nonetheless, the role of atheism or hostility to religion in such resorts is an empirical question, if a difficult one, to determine, uh, and cannot be fobbed off, as it tends to be by uh, Dawkins, who says, quote, why would anyone go to war for the sake of absence of belief? Such a comment somewhat naively ignores the way in which such a lack of belief might generate positive and alarming outcomes when conjoined with other elements in an ideology. Compare, why would anyone write a vigorous, highly combative book for the sake of absence of belief? Another of the new atheists, Christopher Hitchens, bolsters the case for the extent of religiously inspired violence by claiming that the communist and Nazi totalitarianisms and others like them were actually forms of religion. He says, I quote, a political scientist or anthropologist would have little difficulty in recognising what the editors and, contrib and contributors to The God That Failed put into such immortal secular prose. 
Communist absolutists do not so much negate religion in societies that, well, that they well understood were saturated with faith and superstition, but seek to replace it. This echoes a common response to the excesses of communism, fascism and much else, namely to note features of the ideologies that have similarities to what are more normally called religions, and thereby bring those ideologies within the orbit of condemnations of religion proper, thus showing that religion is responsible for much more than you might think. The same move is sometimes made via the idea of absolutism, as is suggested by the quote from Hitchens. So it is admitted that Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot and Mao had mindsets that led to their dreadful acts of immoral murder, torture and repression, but this is credited to their quasi-religious absolutism. Yet we are given very little indication of what this absolutism is and how it leads to the violent consequences. This came up earlier. Absolutism is also invoked in connection with some other dangers of religion, such as the bigotry and denigration of outsiders. So the idea is worth some brief attention, especially as it has a direct connection with problems of religious disagreement. We are all opposed to absolutism in the sense of unconstrained political power, but the charge against religion seems more an epistemological one at heart. It's the idea that those termed absolutists regard themselves as having total certainty attaching to some one or other of their beliefs. But unless one embraces some form of epistemological relativism or scepticism, this is the position, as GE more famously showed, that all of us are in. Most of us in this room have absolute convictions that we have heads, that we are in Oxford, that we are, some of the time, listening to a talk, uh, uh, and so on. Moving to less mundane examples, most of us are absolutely sure that democracy is better than fascist dictatorship as a form of government, that the Holocaust really happened and that it was grossly wrong treatment of Jews, that the rise of modern science is on the whole a very good thing, that logical reasoning is mostly better than guesswork, and so on. As nice liberal agnostics, absolutely and correctly convinced of the importance of tolerance as a virtue and the merit and context of sceptical attitudes of a kind, many Western intellectuals don't like to think of themselves as having deeply rooted and settled convictions, but their tolerance and mild scepticisms would be impossible without deep fixed convictions such as those on the list. In this sense, we are all absolutists. Uh, there's another sense of, of absolutism about moral absolutism which I'm going to skip. Against this, it might be objected that the problem with religion is not that the faithful have deep convictions, but that they are fanatical in pursuit of them. This seems to be the real core of the allegation of absolutism from uh, Dawkins, Hitchens and others. Again, there is some complexity in assessing the nature of fanaticism, which can be a mere term of abuse, the application of which tends to be more in the eye of the beholder than anchored to clear criteria. In this, it is much like the application of stubborn, whereby your behaviour evokes the adjective stubborn, and my own identical actions invoke instead from me the description resolute. Nonetheless, although we should be cautious in throwing the term around, there's a real phenomenon of fanaticism, and it's a disturbing one. The Oxford Shorter Dictionary defines it in terms of, quote, an excessive zeal or enthusiasm, especially for an extreme cause, and it mentions religion and politics as areas where the term is commonly in play. The two key qualifiers here are excessive and extreme, and their application is clearly open to debatable judgment in context. Is someone who shows uncommon enthusiasm for abolishing the practice of enslaving women for prostitution a fanatic? Both excessive and extreme express negative evaluations, one on a disproportionate degree of enthusiasm and the other on the wrongness or dubiousness of the cause. Unusual acts of singular dedication may make many of us who lead cosy and regular lives feel uncomfortable, but they are not thereby fanatical in this pejorative sense. Father Damien de Voester's selfless life of service to the leper colony on the island of Molokai was a dedicated co to commitment that's not for everyone, but it's not thereby fanatical. British politicians thought Mahatma Gandhi a fanatic for his campaign of non-violent resistance to imperial rule in India. 
but that expresses their bias rather than objective judgments of his cause and methods. That's not to deny that religions have been involved in fanaticism, but fanaticism is a feature of the implementation of belief systems generally, as is evident in the zealous prosecution of their cause by free market ideologues in the recent history of capitalism, not to mention the more dangerous fanaticism sometimes involved in 19th century imperialism and 20th century totalitarianism. Some forms of fanaticism do not involve bad causes, but rather a distorted pursuit of good ones. And here they are connected in complex ways with the phenomenon of moralism that I've explored <coughs> elsewhere, in particular what I've labelled the moralism of misplaced emphasis. So it may be that someone has grasped an important moral truth or non-moral value, but proceeds to implement it with little or no regard for other truths or values that should be held in balance with it. Environmentalists, for instance, may be so determined to respect the natural environment that they ignore the case for clearing trees near human habitation in order to prevent bushfire disasters. This is a real, though controversial example, but it's been debated in Australia after the shocking loss of life in bushfires in Victoria in the southern summer of 2009. But surely it will be said fanaticism is a more likely feature of outlooks that claim the authority of God for their beliefs and practices than those without such recourse. Again, this raises the question of the necessity of theism for religion. But leaving that aside, it does seem plausible that people who are confident in the Almighty's support would be spurred to perhaps excessive determination in their pursuit of objectives they regard as divinely endorsed. So if people wrongly think God wants them to pursue some evil path, they may do so with determined energy. It must, I think, be conceded that the invocation of God's support has often been a spur to fanaticism. Two considerations somewhat soften the force of this argument. The first is that utilising God in an unworthy cause is a form of blasphemy, which should be condemned on religious grounds. From within Christianity, to take one example, there is plenty of scope to caution against the invocation of God on behalf of our determined pursuit of objectives that cause harm to others. The Christian needs to be alert not only to false prophets elsewhere, but to assuming that role himself. So invoking God on behalf of fanaticism can equally be met by appealing to God against it. And indeed, this has often enough happened in the history of Christianity. The conquistadors who pillaged in the newly discovered Americas in the 16th century claimed a right to violent conquest because the natives they sought to dispossess and plunder were pagans with no political legitimacy to their land and its treasures. But the religious argument they made was rejected by some of the leading theologians of the day and not merely in private. Two of the most outspoken uh, were Bishop uh, Bartolomeo de las Casas and the Dominican Thomas theologian Antonio Montesinos. I've got some discussion then, but I'll skip it. Secondly, some despoilers with non-religious ideology seem to have had as much fanatical drive as any religious enthusiasts when it comes to spectacular resorts to violent persecution, as the history of the 20th century illustrates abundantly. Stalin and Mao, as already noted, did well enough in the fanaticism states without resort to divine assistance. It seems that support from whatever it is that you regard as the highest value or sanction, be it historic, history, ethnicity, science, the proletariat, the nation, the super race or manifest destiny, will do to drive some fanatical enterprise, especially when it coheres with the usual human instincts of power, glory and riches. The issue of divisiveness connects with that of fanaticism. Fanatical attachment to one's own version of religious truth or practice can pose serious difficulties for civic harmony and welfare and could be a contributing factor in outbreaks of violence. But again, it seems superficial to attribute all the causative significance to the of the disturbances to religious factors alone. What seems basically at issue is the investment that people have in deep identities. Religion is often involved in such identities, but it's very seldom exhaustive of them. People with the same religion but different ethnic or racial backgrounds can be as exclusive of or prejudiced against each other as people with different religious orientations. 
The conflict in the Sudan illustrates this since some of the problems that have produced so much disharmony and violence in that sad country arise from conflicting attitudes between Arab and African Muslims. The common religion is an ineffective antidote to the ethnic animosities. In this case, the outcome of the mix is bad, but there are particular historical, economic and cultural circumstances that help to explain that. And in other contexts, the outcome of the mix can be good. The fact that Muslim migrants to a multicultural society like Australia come from a variety of national and ethnic backgrounds has been argued by one sociologist, Gary Baumer, to explain why Islamic people in Australia by and large have settled in so well. Their different ethnic backgrounds mean that they don't identify so strongly with each other as to create a widespread religio-political-ethnic identity that might draw upon historic grievances to set them apart in a hostile stance from the host community. One thing that the divisiveness issue raises is the great change in attitude to religious difference that has gathered force in the latter part of the 20th century, a change associated with the ecumenical movement. The new atheists are inclined to see this and other softening tendencies in modern religions, especially Christianity, as retreat or abandonment of genuine religion. So they then helpfully concentrate their attacks upon those reactionary or rigid religious tendencies which they see as repellent but more authentic. No doubt some of this change in the direction of greater charity and acceptance on the part of religions has been produced by external factors such as the need to join forces against real or perceived non-religious or anti-religious tendencies in the modern world and a fuller realisation of the evils that exclusion and division can support. But it's certainly arguable that much of the impetus for these changes arises out of elements that were already present long before in mainstream religions themselves. These elements, such as the outer centrality of love and the gospel message of Christianity and its echoes in other religions, the impossibility of coercing faith and the concession that good deeds and lives are possible outside one's own faith community, were no doubt obscured by other elements within the traditions and by cultural and political factors entwined with them. But they were often enough stressed and followed in the lives of believers. In today's world, the movements towards mutual respect and cooperation amongst so many religions have generally been helpful factors in defusing hatreds and diminishing resorts to violence, though the record is not totally straightforward. These changes in attitude that underpin ecumenism raise a more general question of some difficulty about the evolution of religious belief and practice. There is a dynamic at work in the understanding of complex truths or beliefs, or sorry, or belief sets that aim at truth, whereby elaboration and interpretation of them must have recourse to changing conceptual frameworks, new information, and legitimate shifts in perspective. This is true of all fields of knowledge, even the most secure, such as mathematics or logic. There is every reason to believe that it's true of religion and theology, and it's part of what is explored in Cardinal Newman's groundbreaking, if incomplete, study, the development of Christian doctrine. The process involved in such exploration must acknowledge both what was valid in earlier interpretations, but also what was invalid or downright wrong. And this is often difficult for religious authorities, or indeed ordinary believers, since they want to hold to the integrity of the original revelation or insight that established their tradition. Sometimes they are undoubtedly moved by unworthy motives, such as the natural human desire to preserve their own power. But there is also an understandable and more respectable motive of keeping faith with earlier generations of believers in their creed, whose lives will have been shaped by those now superseded interpretations that were endorsed by the authorities of the time. There is a genuine set of dilemmas here that I will not be able to solve in the time available, or perhaps at all, and they're basic to the division between fundamentalists and sophisticates. This discussion also indicates that the difference question cannot be restricted to differences between religions, but also includes differences within religions, even where religion has, is quite narrowly defined. 
So differences within Christianity can be seen as differences within a religion or between religions, depending on context. But even so, there are differences inside specific forms of Christianity, such as the differences between liberal and conservative Catholics or low and high church Anglicans. These seldom lead to violence, but they can produce sharp tensions. There are also tensions between religious and non-religious people that can produce nastiness in certain circumstances, most obviously when religion is perceived by the anti-religious to be threatening to some deeply significant political enterprise. Finally, I want to deal with two issues arising from the above. The first is the positive benefits that can accrue from religious disagreement in its different forms, and the second is the constructive task of suggesting ways to make it more likely that religious disagreement has beneficial or at least not malicious outcomes. In the spirit of J.S. Mill, it can be argued that religious disagreement has the potential to advance understanding of the deeply held views of others and increase comprehension and adjustment of one's own views. Exposure to the different fundamental outlooks of other people can challenge one's own basic moral and spiritual beliefs, both at the level of truth and at that of interpretation. One can, of course, react to this challenge with hostility and outrage, at the folly and error of those others, but a more benign and potentially fruitful reaction is also possible depending upon circumstances. Indeed, the first reaction can develop into the second over the course of time under the influence of context, social pressure and debate. A good example of this is the shifting attitude and doctrine discernible within the Catholic Church over liberal democracy. In the 19th century and well into the 20th, Catholic leaders regularly denounced liberalism, freedom of conscience, and the separation of church and state in ways that are now simply unthinkable. Consider the view that, quote, freedom of conscience and of worship is the proper right of each man, and this should be proclaimed and asserted in every rightly constituted society, unquote. This was denounced by Pius IX in 1864 in the encyclical Quanta Cura. Nowadays, as a result of, uh, sorry, denounced as insanity by uh, Pius IX, Nowadays, as a result of experiencing the merits of liberal democratic societies, Catholics are as vociferous in support of these ideals as any other religious group, but they endorsed these values in practice long before their leaders came to change their tune. The same process can be seen at work in attitudes to contraception, where the leaders are now mostly silent, abortion, euthanasia and the new technologies of reproduction. Authorities in any sphere are reluctant to admit to persistent errors, and this is particularly true of the Catholic Church, I speak as a Catholic, which has managed to build an apparatus of authoritative and sometimes infallible teaching, quotes, into its self-image in such a way that when it does change, it tends to produce a sort of institutional memory lapse uh, to cover the dramatic nature of the change. This is clear in the teaching on liberty and democracy, as it is also on usury, and is very likely to happen with contraception. A related matter is that these shifts and developments are responses both to changing insights into religious tradition itself, as well as to changes in the external environment. Indeed, this way of putting the point is itself too, too static, since it tends to obscure the dynamic by which elements in the religious tradition help bring about changes in the non-religious environment and vice versa, so that the two interact in complex ways, often fruitfully, though it must be said sometimes disastrously. An interesting example of positive interaction concerns institutional authority, where the fraught and erratic evolution of political democracy has had some stimulus from Christian religious doctrines, notably the emphasis upon spiritual equality, and in turn has affected the organisation of religious institutions themselves. Such institutions, especially those of Christianity, were commonly heavily hierarchical during the heyday of absolute princes and monarchs, but have become less so in more recent times, though Catholic authorities continue to resist the serious intrusion of democratic values into its ecclesiolo ecclesiology. But whatever the authorities say, the plain facts on the ground are 
that religious believers who have lived in democratic liberal societies have difficulty maintaining habits of deferential obedience to church authorities when these attitudes are dissonant with the makeup of their personalities and their everyday lives. Hence, the edicts of such authorities, even within the Catholic Church, have nothing like the force they seem to have had in the past, though again, I think there's room for debate about what the past was like. As I shall discuss more fully below, this is an important fact when seeking to accommodate religious differences in civil society, since present politicians far too commonly assume that the utterances of religious authorities express the Catholic view or the Muslim view, or perhaps less often, the Anglican view. I mentioned changing attitudes to abortion, contraception, and so on above. It's worth noting here that there is plenty of empirical evidence of a strong disconnection within the Catholic Church between the expressed views of the hierarchy on a range of such matters to do with sexuality and reproduction and the views and practices of the faithful. Recent surveys in the United States show that the official Vatican line on contraception and abortion has very little influence upon what Catholics think. 85% of American Catholics, uh, Catholic voters approve of government-funded programs that promote and provide contraception to women without health insurance. And 62% of Catholic voters believe that improving access to contraception is a better way of reducing the number of abortions than passing more restrictive abortion laws. Given the general perception of Catholics as doctrinally opposed to both contraception and abortion and committed to, committed to rolling back Roe v. Wade, both these figures tell a remarkable story. Since both the Catholic hierarchy and much of the vocal evangelical leadership in the United States are totally opposed to abortion in any circumstances, a poll conducted by the US Conference of Catholic Bishops is also very revealing, although the bishops did nothing to publicise the results and indeed have not made the full results of the poll publicly available. What has been revealed showed that only 11% of US citizens supported a total ban on abortion. Recent Gallup poll figures have shown that 40% of Catholics compared to 41% of non-Catholics found abortion morally acceptable. Of those surveyed, 24% of regular church-going Catholics agreed that abortion was morally acceptable, and 52% of non-regular church-attending Catholics found it so. And there are very similar results for homosexuality and other issues of contention. I'll just skip them for now. Outside the United States, the situation is likely to be similar, if not more dramatic, certainly in European Catholic countries. All these complicating factors need to be considered in analysing possibilities for accommodation in civil society. Unsurprisingly, such accommodation is not inevitable and it tends to be very slow coming. It's important, therefore, to search for structures and rubrics that will facilitate accommodation. As Jürgen Habermas has recently argued, religious and non-religious people need to, quote, speak with one another rather than, quote, about one another. Sadly, on both sides of this divide, the tendency all too often has been to the latter mode of discourse rather than the former. I want to finish with a brief discussion of certain practical norms that might make for more positive outcomes of religious disagreement in public life and help minimise negative ones. One that I'm going to endorse is what I call, sorry, one that I'm not going to endorse is what I call exclusionist policies. These are much favoured by philosophers who write on the role of religion in public life, notably Robert Audy, Richard Rorty at one stage, and in a complex fashion, John Rawls. They seek to restrict the sort of reasons that religious people can give for their advocacy of public and political uh, policies. I've elsewhere raised objections to the detail of such critiques, but they also suffer from being philosophical in that sense of the word that is often used dismissively. I mean that they are over-concerned with the content of what people say, especially what reasons they should be allowed to give, rather than with certain aspects of what people with strong, strong convictions do and how they do it. Of course, since J.L. Austin and Wittgenstein, we're conscious that words are deeds, but the action aspect of speech that should most concern us in the political context is its perlocutionary effects and illocutionary force rather than locutionary meaning. 
With this in mind, I want to move beyond prohibition and permission on what can be said and look briefly at some broad principles that religious people should respect in their engagement in politics in a liberal democracy. I don't mean to suggest that these proposals should have the force of law. I'm interested in moral and cultural norms. The first is publicity and non-manipulation. One of the things that worries people about the role of religions or ideologies in public life is not their presence or overt uh, reasoning, but their covert operation. It's not that people object totally to the offering of exclusively religious reasons for policies, so much as they object to the operation of religious and other sectional pressures behind the scenes. There's an important publicity condition in the liberal democracy, and the philosopher Immanuel Kant was one of the first to see this. As I understand this condition, however, it's misconstrued as the offering of reasons that everyone could accept. It should rather be seen as the offering and operating of reasons and policies that everyone can scrutinise. The emphasis upon transparency of government and of public institutions has become in recent years a prominent part of public rhetoric about politics in Western countries, especially in connection with problems of corruption. Often this is mere rhetoric and it must be acknowledged that there will be some matters of policy that occasionally, rarely, require a degree of secrecy. But the presumption should be in favour of transparency. Was that noise for me? Uh, no, but oh, okay. uh, <laughs> if, if it had been, it would have been an opportune moment. Yes, well, <laughs> thank you for the tinkle, uh, whoever it was. Uh, I'll go on for a bit longer. Uh, of course, politics itself will always involve deals, and it would be utopian to ignore the inevitable operation of pressure groups, but the primary model of policy formation should be the open presentation and contestation of values, arguments, and pertinent information. Secondly, the complexity of value conflict. Some of the value conflicts that bedevil public policy are indeed between groups who have profoundly conflicting moral outlooks, values, or principles. Others, however, involve conflicts between values that are shared by the parties but given different weights or interpretations. Imagine a debate about some action X that involves the application of science to human reproduction. If A thinks of his proposed action X as advancing the happiness of a childless couple, and B thinks of X as endangering the institution of marriage, while C thinks of it as threatening the well-being of the child to be born in the procedure, they're likely to have very different attitudes to the proposal and to reason in different terms about what is to be done. To advance sane policy discussion, it's necessary for all participants to abandon the blinkers that make it impossible for them, or difficult for them, to view the proposals under more than one or two favoured aspects. This is important because very different descriptions of the one act may all be true or at least plausible. In common with secular ideologies, religious belief can produce such conviction and certitude about some of the relevant act descriptions that other pertinent descriptions are ignored or downgraded. I've got more on that, but I'll skip it. Uh, thirdly, the misuse of authority. This is a widespread temptation, both in the formal arena of politics, e.g. government, and the wider sphere of political activity. The first is common enough, as is apparent in those cases where government officials put pressure on autonomous bodies, such as legal officers, to distort legal processes. But I'm principally interested in the second sort of case, because the interface between religion and politics is often damaged by the misuse of religious authority. This misuse will take form, uh, different forms in different religions, uh, depending upon how hierarchically structured the religions are. In the case of Catholicism, a teaching authority has traditionally been conspicuous, notably in papal and episcopal offices. There can be no objection from the viewpoint of a political democracy to bishops offering guidance or teaching to their congregations on what they think of as core matters of faith and morals. But when this guidance moves into areas of practical public policy, it's very easy for the authority to reach improperly beyond its area of competence. I've got some examples of that which I'll leave out. The uh, fourth one is the value of compromise. I'm not going to discuss this because we discussed it 
previously, and takes me right near the end. Uh, so finally, uh, finally, finally, uh, let me say, <laughs> at least from the Christian point of view, religion is primarily concerned with, with spirituality, with witness to the gospel. This concern cannot be disconnected from the world of public affairs, but the connection must always be subtle, often indirect, and should never betray the sources of its inspiration. The religious person should indeed be fully in the world, where else is there to be in this life? Though there are a variety of ways of exhibiting that fullness. Gregory Mendel, for instance, pioneered a new scientific way of understanding plant life from a monastery. But there is a permanent danger of twisting the meaning of religion by being overcome by the temptation to worldliness, by resort to unworthy means to good ends, by the substitution of victory for integrity and witness. The medieval crusades against Islam and the Holy Lands provide one example of a narrowly understood enterprise of worldly success for religion, replacing genuine religious impulses, as do contemporary Islamic movements that are addicted to violence. In the modern world, seeking to deliver or deny a Catholic vote or an Anglican vote, or attempting to dominate secular parties by covert means, operating secret religious pressure groups, all provide examples of the same phenomenon. The persistence of such impulses needs to give place, as it has in many believers, to a principled commitment to the ideals of liberal democracy. Only then can religious people put to rest the partial truth in W.H. Auden's cynical comment, quote, the only reason the Protestants and Catholics have given up the idea of universal domination is because they've realised they can't get away with it. Thank you. <laughs> English Anglican priest ordained in the Antipodes myself, albeit in South Africa, I must say that I um, appreciate and agree with um, virtually everything you've said, Tony, so thanks very much for emphasising, as one or two other speakers have, the many subtleties that can be missed by the broad brush approach that we have seen in some of the papers so far. You point out the danger of sweeping generalisation implied in the question, how dangerous is religion? It ignores the vast variations both within and between religions and those things that can be classified as religions. Indeed, it ignores their own evolving nature through time and it ignores the work of religious actors in peace building, it ignores the ecumenical movement, it ignores the increasing interfaith dialogue. In the very brief time I've got, I'd like to pick up on the theme of variation within religion, which you have opened. First of all, I'd like to point to the countercultural, prophetic role of religion. You mentioned Bartolome de las Casas, who spoke out against the depredations of Spanish conquistadors uh, in the in Latin America. In South Africa, we have Desmond Tutu, and before him, his mentor, Trevor Huddleston, and many others. Many have been prophets in modern times. Looking back at a very countercultural person in the Middle Ages, we might be Count St. Francis, an inspiration to many. In his youth, St. Francis took part in the wars between Assisi and nearby towns. He was imprisoned and had time to be counted. <coughs> And what he thought was, people fight each other for pride and possessions, so let's get rid of those. Let's embrace poverty and have no possessions. A very radical answer to the problem as he saw it. 
He is an inspiration. He is a sign, a prophetic sign. Just as in ancient Israel, the more reactionary elements in religious institutions will always side with political interests in opposition to prophets. But we have prophets, and they are, by and large, inspired by religion. We need them. It's the prophet, the saint, who is the paradigmatic religious figure. And incidentally, Sir Francis in his time talked to the Taliban. Sir Francis literally went to Cairo when it was being besieged by the Crusaders and spoke to the Caliph, who was so impressed by him that he gave him a free passage to go to the Holy Land. Hence, the Franciscans to this day are the guardians of the holy places in the Holy Land or the Catholic Church. I'd like to talk a little more about personal growth within a religious tradition. Often in South Africa when I spoke to groups, congregations, all sorts of institutions about peacemaking in the transition period, I would quote Ambrose of Milan. Now Ambrose was a fairly combative political bishop, but he did say this to his clergy. When you begin to be a Christian, and you're at the very first stage, you will learn that when somebody insults you, you don't thump them. At the next stage, uh, at the first stage, you may, however, not thump them, but you may well speak back verbally, you may well insult them, either to their face or behind their back. Stage one. Stage two, we go a bit further in Christian formation. And at this stage, we learn at least to keep silent. Third stage, the stage of perfection, we not only keep silence, but we return the compliment with love. We pray for those who persecute us, we do good to them. We shower goodness upon them, we love them. This is the third stage. There are questions of justice here, but the point is, what do we do? Do we hit back with resentment? Or do we have no chips on our shoulder and genuinely love that person who has problems and therefore is insulting us? Three stages in spiritual growth. And only the person at stage one who hits back with an insult is in the least dangerous. The whole point of Christian spiritual growth, and one can parallel this in other religions, illustrated here is to become less dangerous and more irenic and more a positive contributor to a peaceful society and a peaceful world. Why is Desmond Tutu revered? Why did masses of people more than could get in want to see him and hear him last weekend? Finally, I'd just like to introduce a quote from Scott Appleby's seminal book, The Ambivalence of the Sacred, which is on religious violence and peacemaking. And he makes a distinction between strong and weak religion, and he speaks about it in this way. A religion is strong, first of all, if its institutions are well-developed and secure, and its adherents literate in its doctrinal and moral teachings, and practiced in its devotional, ritual, and spiritual traditions. In speaking against a weak form, Folk religion, I do not mean the religion of the people in general, as if religion in the home or village is low or superstitious, while the religion of the urban elites is the real religion. 
I do mean religious practice of any kind disconnected from the larger religious tradition, from its network of fellow believers, leaders, schools, publications, material objects, formal rituals and other resources that convey and negotiate the rich diversity and internal pluralism of the tradition and sustain its multi-generational moral and theological arguments about the meaning and values of the sacred community. Thus, a weak religion is one in which the people retain meaningful contact only with vestiges of the broader religious worldview and the network of meanings and resources in which they are isolated from one another and from educators and spiritual moral exemplars and in which ethnic, nationalist, secular, liberal and other worldviews and ideologies have a free reign to shape the meaning of those vestiges. And he gives us an example, the crucifixes worn by Serbian soldiers raping Muslim women at Srebrenica. One could also instance Rwanda. Something went wrong there. Christians on both sides, Hutu and Tutsi, slaughtered each other. Christianity, a mile wide and an inch deep. All the churches have turned to peace building in a big way since Rwanda. How do you form people in the real tradition? <coughs> Religious illiteracy then weakens religion, but so do informed interpreters who privilege, exalt and reify its capacity for violence. This is the second sense in which the term strong and weak religion could apply. Radical fundamentalisms are hardly weak religious movements if weakness is to be equated with religious illiteracy. The core of the most vital fundamentalist movements in the world today, and he's writing in 2000, are peopled by engineers, doctors, lawyers, technicians and religious scholars who can present a sustained and often sophisticated argument for their particular interpretations of the scriptures, moral traditions and sacred precepts of their host religious traditions. Fundamentalisms are strong in that sense. The normative judgment I share with many others, however, holds that interpretations of the sacred that legitimate intolerance and violence toward outsiders, while religious in the full sense of the word, are nonetheless flawed. They inhibit religion's rich capacity to promote pluralistic and tolerant political cultures, and thus they are weak in this normative sense. So, religion per se can go both ways. 